we begin to look at the high priesthood of Jesus. But then we got to this point in Hebrews chapter 5 where the pastor said to the people, I have much to say about this. I have so much to give you in this regard. But we found that he was keen to stop and he was keen to pause and he was keen to teach them or to encourage them towards maturity. Now we find that he's picking up this theme again and explaining this relationship between Jesus and Melchizedek. Now, even reading through this, it's easy to appreciate that this is a lot. This is a a lot of information to absorb, a lot of information to get your head around. But I want to encourage you right from the start that the pastor here, as he writes this letter, is not sharing all this with us to show just how much he knows. He's sharing it with us with the hope that we would get a fuller picture of who Jesus is. We would learn from who Melchizedek is more about who Jesus is. He's trying to flesh out that idea of Christ in our minds and hearts, giving it a 3D effect rather than having a 2D-ness to it. He's trying to, to, to do this so that he can give a solid apologetic for who Jesus is, so that he can stir up our affections, so that he can shore up our foundations or the foundations of our faith. Think about it like this. The pastor isn't saying all these things so that he can sit there like a kid at school gloating over the goodies in his lunchbox. He's showing it so that like a mater d, he can encourage us to tuck into the feast instead of watching from the window or perpetually nibbling on the bread. He wants us to enjoy and see the fullness of who Christ is. So in that regard, it's worth giving him your full attention, giving him as much as you can give as we see who Christ is as he compares him to Melchizedek. Why don't we pray and then we'll kick off. Wonderful. Lord, we thank you for the chance to gather here today to come before you, come into your presence, come before your word, be filled with your spirit. It is such a privilege, Lord, to come and to sing songs of your glory, your holiness, your wonder, and at the same time sing songs of intimacy. We can be close to you We can be near to you because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Lord, that we have a holy God who we can be close to. Thank you, Lord, that we have a holy God who we can stand in the presence of with confidence because of what you have done, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would impress upon us just how rich a privilege this truly is we pray lord that you would impress upon us just how amazing it is that you are a high our high priest after the order of melchizedek lord we pray these things relying on your spirit knowing you can work in jesus christ's name amen A few years back, Rebecca and I 
took some friends and we went to Parakai Springs, which is this beautiful outdoor pool facility in West Auckland, a place that is just stunning on the right day. Beautiful experience if you ever want to go. So we, we went to this place and we spent the morning, you know, swimming, checking out all the pools, going down all the hydro slides. We sat down to eat lunch with our friends and I remember very distinctively looking at my friend as she looked over my shoulder and seeing her face go white as a sheet. She had just spotted a lifeguard diving into the pool to save a drowning child. Her face goes white. I want you to put yourself in those, in the shoes of us, in the shoes of our friend, as we watch that scene unfold. And for a moment, I want you to imagine a fictitious finish to that scene. Thankfully, this is not how it finished. It ended well, the child was saved. But imagine for me, with me this morning a fictitious finish to that story. The lifeguard swims over, but on the way fatigues. He's desperately unfit. And before he even reaches the child, realizes he's not going to be able to save him. All he does is he gets to the child and he moves him closer to the edge before needing to retire himself. There is a, this is a fictitious finish, thank goodness, but I just want to ask you the question, what has happened? What has he accomplished? He has half saved the child. He's gotten to the child and he's pushed him closer. He's half saved the child, but he hasn't really saved the child at all. The reason I want to introduce with this illustration this morning is because some of us, as we imagine the work that Christ has done, imagine him to be a savior like this lifeguard. We imagine Jesus doing the type of saving work that this lifeguard has done. When we begin to think about Jesus and the salvation that he has accomplished for us, we doubt its sufficiency. We doubt his saving work, his ability to save. And because of that, we end up asking things or saying things like this. Jesus couldn't possibly save me. We look at our past, too broken. We look at our present, too dark. And we say to ourselves, Jesus couldn't possibly save me. Maybe even as believers, we find ourselves saying things like this, Jesus hasn't saved me properly or finally or fully. We find ourselves doubting the sufficiency of Jesus' salvation and we imagine that Jesus has half saved us. He is either unable to save us or only capable of half doing the job. And that is why, brothers and sisters, that is why, family, this, church, this text is so important. Because this text is reminding us that we have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek who doesn't half save his people. He is able to save to the uttermost, perfectly, those who draw near to him, draw near to God through him. That is the point of this text. That is the center. That is the, the point that the pastor is getting across. Jesus 
is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He doesn't leave his people half saved. As we go about looking at this this morning, what I want to do is look at the broad structure of chapter 7 and then zoom into verse 25. Why don't we first look at the broad structure of chapter 7? What the pastor is doing here for us this morning is he's trying to give us a greater understanding of who Jesus is as this high priestly character after the order of Melchizedek. What he's doing is giving an apologetic for Jesus' genuineness as a high priest. He can truly be a high priest and his greatness as a high priest. He's not only a high priest, he is the high priest. He is a superior high priest. If you cast your eyes down to the Bible, what you'll see is in verse 1 to 10, the pastor reminding us first of Melchizedek's greatness. What he's going to do is he's going to impress upon us Melchizedek's greatness, and then he's going to show us Jesus's Melchizedekianness, if you like. He's going to show that Jesus is great by showing that Melchizedek is great. If you look down again from verses 1 to 10, what you'll see is drawing from uh, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, uh, the pastor uh, urging us to recall the story of Melchizedek and the fact that he was an anomaly. He was without record, without recorded beginning or end. He was without mother or father. He was out without beginning of days or end of life. He was an anomaly. He was also a limited addition. He was a king and a priest. If you see the way that he is described, he's described as a king of Salem and a king of righteousness, a king of peace and a king of righteousness. He's also described as a priest of the Most High, having a ministry that continues forever meaning it is without definitive end. The interesting thing about this description of Melchizedek is that through the Old Testament, what we see is the absolute separation of king and priest. Yet here we have one man who combines them both. He is a king-priest type character, and that is what makes him a type of Christ, a man who resembled the Son of God, he uh, many have assumed, or many have suspected that here Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Jesus. But I think what he's saying is that he bore resemblance to Christ in the way that he was a type. He pointed forward to one who was to come, who would both be the king and the priest for his people. What he's trying to say, though, as we gather all these points together, is that Melchizedek was great, that he was the greatest, and that he was superior not only to Abraham, but to all the Levitical priesthood too. We see this coming out clearly in verses 4 and 7, where he's saying, look how much superior this man is even to Abraham. If Abraham is the Scotty Pippin, then Melchizedek is the Michael Jordan. And this is a significant point to make for people who were showing a propensity to go back to their Jewish faith. 
He's saying, look, there is one who is greater. And he will go on to say that, look, Jesus is like him and even greater than Abraham and all the Levitical priesthood too. The second thing we see in the text is the pastor remind us of Jesus' similarity to Melchizedek as a high priest from verse 11 through to verse 28. Jesus, of course, couldn't be a high priest by natural descent. He was from the tribe of Judah rather than being from the tribe of Levi. He couldn't get there by birth, so he needed to be someone else. And that is where Melchizedek comes in. Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But this isn't a step down, of course. He's just showing us just how much Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and even the Levitical priests. He's saying, again, Jesus is superior to these priests. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is an anomaly too. We see, we see three aspects of this Melchizedekianness come through in the chapter that the pastor wants to impress upon us. Jesus is a permanent high priest. Verse 16 reminds us that he is evidenced as the eternal high priest by the power of his indestructible life. He is the one who was resurrected. He is the one who was ascended and is in the heavens on high, functioning as the high priest. Verse 17 reminds us that Jesus fulfills Psalm 110. He is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In verse 24, the pastor contrasts the Levitical priest with Jesus who is able to hold his priesthood permanently and continues forever. He isn't like the Levitical priests. He doesn't die out and need to be replaced. He has an eternal calling. He is permanent. He is also prominent. He stands alone, verse 15, in the sense that he is in the likeness of Melchizedek. Verse 28 reminds us that he was appointed not by right of birth, but because of an oath that God has made. He is God's son. Not only does he stand above the imperfect Levitical priests, he supersedes them in his sacrificial service. He has offered up himself as the one sacrifice that would make the people right with God and in doing so actually made the Levitical priesthood redundant, no longer needed. They can retire, hang up their boots, their job is done. The final thing we see is that he is the perfect high priest. In his personhood, verse 26, is a wonderful way of describing Jesus. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He was the perfect man, the Son of God, the only perfect man, which prepared him for his position perfectly. Verse 27, he has no need like those other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. The pastor is saying Jesus had no need to either do it regularly or do it, do offer sacrifices for his own sin. He was perfect and he offered the one-time sacrifice that made us right with God. 
So if you're ever wondering what type of high priest we have gathering all these things together, we have a Melchizedekian high priest who is a genuine high priest, who is a great high priest, who is a permanent high priest, a prominent high priest, and a perfect high priest. Again, Jesus is making this powerful, apologetic statement to those who were drifting away, thinking maybe Judaism is, is the thing I should stick to by saying, well, Jesus is greater than even your greatest patriarch, Abraham, or one of your great patriarchs, Abraham. He's greater than all the Levitical priesthood. He supersedes them, renders them redundant. He has done their job. He is also providing a powerful apologetic point for us if we are ever tempted to abandon our confession in Christ and go to one of the, the inferior religions which offer us a half salvation. He's saying what Jesus has provided for you is everything you need. If our faith is a house, then he is giving us extra structural strength. He's also making a powerful pastoral point. He's saying all this because he wants to impress upon the people that because of him we have a better hope. If you look down to verse 19, what you see is him make his point. Through him, a better hope is introduced through which we can draw near to God. Isn't that amazingly powerful pastorally? A history of distancing yourself from God and coming to him through the Levitical priesthood, which at best would offer you a daily reprieve. And here he's saying through Jesus, the, the, the great high priest, you can now draw near to God and have a better hope, a better and full hope in Christ. He's saying what you have is so much better. Don't question even for a second or don't abandon that reality even for a second. Because of Jesus' high priestly ministry and identity, you don't need to live your lives like the Jews do or the Muslims do or the J-dubs do or the 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 Mormons do, thinking and wondering and anxiously asking, have I done enough? Have I sacrificed enough to please God? Am I right with God today because of what I have done? He's saying you're thinking about it all wrong. It is because of what Jesus has done that you can draw near to him in the clothing and the righteousness that is his alone. You have a permanent a prominent and a perfect high priest who has given you the ability to draw near to God. If you imagine the situation, imagine God's throne room pre-Christ. If you can imagine that throne room, what you would have seen was a thousand angelic guards keeping people from being in the presence of God. What he's saying here is that as, as we come in Christ, we are now welcome to wander in and wonder at our Father who is in the throne room of heaven if we come in the robes of Christ. We are welcomed just as the Son is welcome to come in 
because we too are sons and daughters as well. We have a greater hope. We have the ability to draw near to God. The guards around the throne room of God have been retired in Christ. We we are welcome to come and be near to him. This leads us to the final verse that I want to touch on today and the concluding point that the pastor makes. If you think about the verses that we have just touched on, think about them like you think of the jib and plaster and undercoat that goes on the wall before you paint it. It needs to be there. It has to be, it has to be done well for you to, to have the final coat, but it sets everything up for the final coat, the very thing that people will see. And that is where the pastor is taking us. If you boil down chapter 7, and if you left it on the stove for an hour, you would be left with verse 25, where he says, Consequently, coming from all that has gone before, applying what I've just impressed upon you about the Melchizedekianness of Jesus, he says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus doesn't leave his people half saved. He is able to and does save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. You know, one of the most difficult things about going through this journey with Peter has been the concept of not being able to help him, not being able to save him. Something that I've had to reconcile with over and over and over again. I could go through this whole process and accomplish nothing for him, being unable to save him. The amazing thing about what this text says is that Jesus has never been limited by this feeling. He is able to and does save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. People in him, if they draw near to God through him, are saved both eternally and perfectly. Perfectly today and for all eternity, which means there is no hint of insufficiency to the salvation that Jesus offers for his people. There is no hint of insecurity for those who draw near to God in him. In him we are saved eternally and perfectly from sin and the consequences of sin, death and wrath and judgment and hell, saved eternally and perfectly because of the sacrifice given, because of the atonement offered to make amends for sin. In him... We have been saved eternally and perfectly from the situation we find ourselves in because of our sin. Our relationship with God damaged fundamentally and comprehensively, but restoration offered in Christ for those who were once aliens and enemies. We are now family and friends. Why is this possible? Why can we be confident this is true? because Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. 
if you wonder what Jesus is doing for you today, if you are in Christ, he is not on his cloud or in his chair enjoying the work that he has done. He is beside the Father making intercession for those who are his people. He lives with a purpose to be a priest for his people and he is perpetually, perfectly presenting the case before the Father for your good. He's applying the atonement that he accomplished by his own blood before a Father who willingly receives his prayers. He's saying to the Father, receive the atonement for my people. He doesn't leave his people half saved. Which means for you today, if you are genuinely drawing near to God through him, if you have confessed with your mouth and believed with your heart that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Saviour, you have no reason to doubt the sufficiency of Christ's work. You have no reason to doubt the effectiveness of his saving work. You have no reason to doubt his ability to save or to think of him as that heavy-breathing lifeguard. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the salvation we have. This is the saviour we have. He has accomplished what he today applies before the Father. And in humility, we can only say, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us if we ever tear our eyes off you and, 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 and are discouraged as we look at the remnant sin in our lives. Lord, forgive us if we ever forget what you have done and who you are. Help us to remember who you are as our high priest and help us never think that you have only done half a job or you have done something in an incomplete way. We are so thankful, Lord, that we can come knowing we can draw near to God through you. Help us, Lord, to enjoy who you are and what we have in you. Thank you for retiring the guards in Christ and for helping us to come as sons and daughters of Christ into the throne room confidently, confidently. What a wonder that is, Lord. You are our high priest. In Jesus' name, amen.